Drink and Read presents War and Peace, Volume 1, Part 3, Chapters 1 through 8. I've always been the one to say the first goodbye Even though I prayed to my icons a hundred million times Daddy says I'm wrong but I know what I like And I'm praying He'd be in the center of attention But Anatole, you can take whatever you want from me Look into these eyes, baby it doesn't help that you're the first boy that I've seen in a century. Oh, God help me. I should stay at home, cause I'm doing better alone. But when you said, what a, I knew I'd be tested today. Shouldn't let you in, should've listened to Mademoiselle Warren. Am I falling in love with this asshole who break my heart? I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, and we're about to read some good shit. Welcome back to Drink and Read, the neighborhood's best recent War and Peace recap podcast with me, Jonathan Kwiatkowski. When we last left off in our small sections, we had just recapped the first war portion of the novel. Uh, Nikolai is battle-torn and depressed. Andre is over the whole war. It's not exactly what he expected. And today we're going to see what's going back on in Moscow once more with the Bolkonskis and the Kuragins at the forefront. Of course, before we get into the action, I have an appendices section. The first thing that I want to apologize is at some points during the last episode, I referred to Tushin as Tushkin. I think that's part of my speech impediment, so I do apologize. I don't know what I was thinking of. And secondly, I said front lines about 10 billion times last episode. When I'm in the heat of the moment, my mind is not a lexicon, I can't refer to synonyms right off the bat like that, but I will try working on that for you, audience, dear readers. But otherwise, I felt that it was a very successful episode, or too many war sections. I thought that the war sections would be a drag on this second read of mine, but it turns out there is a lot to offer. Um, I hope you enjoyed my slight reading of Nikolai's thoughts as he feared he was approaching death, it just really stood out to me, that passage, and when other passages stand out to me, I hope you'd be open to me sharing them with you. Today, we are going to return to Moscow and see what's what with Vasily as he tries to set up Pierre with his daughter Helene, and Mary Bolkonsky is going to go through something that every young girl goes through, boy trouble. Anatol Karagin is going to walk into her life, and she is going to have to decide between him and God, as we often do. This is Drink and Read, though. What am I drinking? Why, to bring us down from that high of the war section, I'm drinking plain purified water that I've risquely flavored with a little bit of citrus. Oh, can you imagine? We begin Volume 3 in 1805, right back in Moscow, and who do we open our chapter on but the snake Vasily Kuragin? And he's got a new plot in his mind. He's going to pretend as if Pierre is the most important man in the world in order to set up his beautiful daughter, Helene, with Pierre and obtain the vast fortune. 
Pierre Bezikov is dealing with the horrors of popularity. Now that he's rich, he can't get a moment alone. People are expecting lots of things from him. And instead of ignoring him, he is now the center of attention, which has never been Pierre's um, preferred method of life. Pierre has a nagging suspicion in the back of his mind that these friends are false friends, but he is kind of swept up in the emotions of things. You have to remember that he has been ignored for the majority of his life, and now he's the buzzin' socialite that he never expected himself to be. Every time Vasily is speaking with Pierre, he makes it appear as if he's sparing the only possible moment of his time, and that he's deigning to be at Pierre's beck and call as a close personal confidant. And while helping Pierre out with his guidance, he is getting paid for his services, part one because he's a greedy bastard, and part two he wants to give any hush money for anyone who would happen to see that whole Anna Mikhailovna will incident with him and Catherine. Pierre is welcomed back into Petersburg with open arms, and his new job essentially is to attend all of these socialites' parties and mingle amongst the hoi polloi. Pierre is not accustomed to this, but he is reveling in everyone pulling a complete 180 on him, whereas they would shrug him off at first sight. Now he's the center of every conversation, and he gets to spend a lot of time with Vasily's beautiful daughter, Helene. As you will recall, whenever Helene walks into the scene, there's a whole Bob Fosse number with the Hello, boys. To show just how far he's come, Anna Polovna, the lady hosting the party in the opening chapters, who was butting heads with Pierre for shutting out the, the abbot, if I recall, has personally invited him to another one of her salons. This is a big honor, and Pierre, I can only imagine, is playing the Jefferson's theme song in his head with, We're moving on up to the rich side. Pierre accepts the invitation and arrives at the party only to come to the conclusion that all his other man friends, his bachelor friends, are fighting in the war and he is the only one not there with them. Awkward. Anna Polovna, always the classy act, greets Pierre, obviously a bit different with the class distinction, but with a tinge of sorrow knowing that Pierre has recently lost his father. Anna Polovna also takes it upon herself to give Pierre and Helene Kuragin a private, intimate moment to discuss, well, a budding relationship. If there's one thing Anna Polovna loves as much as gossiping and hosting a salon, it's being a matchmaker. Don't get used to it, but these two are awkwardly charming when they're trying to have their first conversation. Helene is pretending to inspect a, a very beautiful snuff box of sorts and inches her way closer and closer to Pierre to start a conversation. Pierre, being the big, lonely type of man that is more likely to play with his Star Wars collectibles than actually speak with a woman, can't help but imagine that Helene is naked whenever she is very close to him. Not in a skeezy way, but oh my god, why am I thinking about this? I've only had these thoughts for Princess Leia. Now that Pierre has an accidental boner, which it turns out, that's 1920s slang. Did you know that boner meant a sort of accident back in the day? Happy little accident, if you ask me. He has convinced himself and picked up on the obvious neon flashing signs that everyone wants him to marry Helene that now there is no option. He must marry her. And whereas Pierre was a negative one before, he's rich. So he about balances out Helene at a 10. Love don't cost a thing, but money sure do help. 
Helene also can't hold a candle to Pierre's inner machinations, whereas Pierre is constantly thinking about war and soul-searching and religion and the Masons. Helene is asking about him redecorating his apartment. But nonetheless, Pierre returns home and dreams about his and Helene's eventual wedding day. His mind is telling him no, but his body, his body's telling him yes. Pierre should know better than to get involved with the Karagans, which he later refers to as a vile and heartless brood, but Helene pulled a whap. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Chapter 2, two weeks have gone by and Pierre needs to make a decision. Is he going to marry Helene? I know things are moving pretty fast, but there's a war going on and the life expectancy is not high, so time to pay the piper, Pierre. Pierre is eternally nervous, so Vasily decides to take it into his own hands. Listen, Helene's name day is coming up. You're gonna either pop the question then at that party, or I'm gonna do it for you, buddy. So Pierre gets no choice in the matter. <laughs> at Helene's name day party, Tolstoy gives us two separate viewpoints into the relationship in question. The first being the guest looking in at Pierre and Helene's budding romance, and the next is the nerve-wracked. Pierre and Helene's own commentary on what's going on in the moment. To the outside looking in, this is a beautiful, bashful couple to be. And from the inside looking out, Pierre and Helene are both nervous wrecks. But otherwise, the company surrounding them seems to admit that Helene is out of Pierre's league. And Pierre is lucky to receive a beautiful wife in this transaction. And Helene is going to get a big, 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 big paycheck. Pierre is eternally sweating as he feels that he does like Helene, but he doesn't know how he would ever hold up in a relationship with her. She's going to stay beautiful her entire life, and he is an ugly middle-aged man who is only rich and can never hope to measure up to what Helene expects of him. Helene is just happy because her father is pressuring her into this relationship and that she's going to get all the clothes and jewelry and status that she could desire out of Pierre. Vasily's wife, who's more or less described as that frumpy old bitch is upset that Pierre hasn't proposed to her daughter yet. There's this jealousy brewing within her because you can only imagine what her marriage to Vasily has been like now that he's pimping out his daughter to the highest payer. But Vasily decides now is the time to make his move. He locks Helene and Pierre in a room and strongly hints that by the time he comes back there better be an engagement ring on that finger. Vasily comes back even later in the night to only see that they are still chit-chatting and goes, all right, enough of the shenanigans, walks into the room, congratulations, I heard that you got engaged when they haven't even proposed to one another yet. But Pierre just rolls with it, and the two are officially partnered. Helene is now Helene Bezukhov Karagin Jimmy Dean Sausage, or whatever nine name she's going to tack on to her title. There is an uncomfortable scene showing us how this marriage is going to turn out when Pierre tries to bend over and kiss Helene's hand. Helene looks at his glasses and says, remove them. You need to kiss me on the mouth like a real man. Pierre does not, still goes to kiss the hand, and Helene redirects his face into her own. I'm sure it's one of those kisses that when you see them, you are just as confused as the people participating in them. Last sentence of the chapter, a month and a half later, the couple is married, settled into a lavish mansion full of all the trinkets and treasures, a beautiful wife such as Helene Bezukhov deserves, and they are residing in Petersburg. Chapter 3, Vasily thinks, now that I've gotten one daughter married off to wealth, you know, I've got 
Ippolit, who is a hopeless case that I'm never going to consider because he's a fucking idiot. But Anatole, my hot, young, hot-headed boy, why, he would make a perfect match for Mary Borgonsky. The mental gymnastics Vasily must do in order to constantly rise in power and accrue more wealth and status, he is a megalomaniac. So Vasily shoots a letter to Prince Bolkonsky, old crotchety man, saying that he's coming over for dinner and he's bringing his son Anatole with him. Bolkonsky is very upset because he hates these two people. He hates them so much. Now, if you think that pettiness was a modern thing that we invented in the naughty oddies, you've got another thing coming, baby. In Bald Hills, it has snowed the night before Vasily and Son are supposed to come over, and the driveway has been plowed, leaving room for the carriage to come through. Bolkonsky goes outside and demands that the snow be put back, because I don't want these people in my house. <laughs> Prince Bolkonsky hates Vasily so much because they... Started on the same career path, but you could see where they wound up. Uh, despite Bolkonsky's war heroism, he has been banished to this country estate, and Vasily is constantly getting more and more money by marrying off his uh, prettier offspring. Everyone in this house is meant to not show that they know that it's obvious that Vasily is on his way here with Anatole in order to marry him off to marry. Every my dinner with Andre moment in this house, and I apologize for not making that joke last time we saw the Bolkonskis at the dinner table, is uncomfortable. Mademoiselle Boren pretends that she doesn't know what's going on and acts like the bimbo she usually acts like. Mary is horrified that she is possibly going to get hitched tomorrow before even meeting this guy. And Lisa knows better than to interact with anyone and pretends that she's sick in the room because she's pregnant. Anatole and Vasily arrive, having to drag their accoutrements over the snow and through the house. And that night, Anatole is preparing to get married, but doesn't realize that Mary is gop plain. She's gonna be ugly and not up to Anatole's standards, and oof, the storm is coming. Mary is concerned because she thinks herself too ugly, and Lisa and Mademoiselle Boren try and give her a makeover and fix her frumpy ass, but... Even an 80s makeover montage can't save this plain Jane. They concern themselves entirely in making her beautiful, but it's a lost cause. Sorry, girl. <laughs> Next! Mademoiselle Borwen and the little princess had to confess to themselves that as she was, Princess Mary looked very bad. Worse than ever, but it was already too late. Like, poor Princess Mary! She's so frumpy that they can't do anything about it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She's a great character, but it it's hilarious. Mary is alone in her room and refuses to look at herself in the mirror to acknowledge her plainness, as it were. But she sincerely has a very tender-hearted moment where she imagines herself getting married and having a child and starting a life and making passionate love to her husband, which isn't a naughty thing. But back in the day and seeing as how religious Mary is, this is nothing but sin! She catches herself when being called down to dinner and prays, prays, prays the horniness away. Chapter 4, Mary makes her way down to dinner, acknowledges everyone in the room except Anatole because she cannot bring her eyes to look at him. Anatole is very comfortable being the center of attention. He walks over to Mary, kisses her on the hand, and exudes all the primal energy of any douchebag. He's clearly beating the woman away because he's just so darn good looking. 
There was that one show on MTV that taught men about peacocking. Oh no, I think Anatole would be the new host. Lisa is talking about blah blah blah, she's pregnant, but Mademoiselle Boirin is giving the hottie with the body eyes to Anatole, and Anatole is, Bonjour, Mademoiselle. Uh-oh, this dinner is devolving into an episode of American Horror Story. Prince Bolkonski tries to intimidate Anatole by asking him questions about what he's even doing here, but Anatole just shrugs it off in that same way that, if you're not used to it now, get used to it. Anatole has this certain air about him that insinuates he's untouchable. Well, unless you're a woman, then you can touch him. Vasily and Prince Bolkonski step outside in order for the youngsters to get more acquainted with one another. Prince Bolkonski suggests that Mary can make up her own damn mind if she wants to get married to Anatole or not, so let's just let nature play its course. Anatole is very happy to be alone with three eligible ladies, but makes eyes at Mademoiselle Boirin. Mademoiselle Boirin is biting her tongue at her plan for Anatole. She's going to allow Anatole to seduce her, and then when she's good and seduced, she's got her jollies, she's going to reveal to Anatole that her dead mother came to her in a dream and said, don't get seduced, but marry this man, and then she will convince Anatole to marry her, and she will be set for life. There's something about these faded Russian French woman in War and Peace that's just mwah, Chef kiss, we love a good intrigue. And poor little plain Mary, she's fallen in love. She thinks Anatole is the most beautiful person that she's ever set her eyes on, and that everyone in the room is hyped for her to marry Anatole, when in fact, she's mistaking Mademoiselle Boirin's intentions. Chapter 5, everyone in the house is wide awake thinking about Anatole, except for Anatole's horny ass, who has fallen fast asleep, because this is something that's commonplace in his life. He's used to it. Mary's having no-no dreams, Lisa is moaning about how she's pregnant and her belly's getting big, and Mademoiselle Boren is rehearsing her little scheme in her room. Prince Bolkonski is upstairs pacing the floor, worried about how his daughter is going to marry a douchebag. The next morning, Mademoiselle Boren corners Anatole, and they go off. Well, I don't know exactly to where, but they did say something about shoeing a horse. <laughs> Mary and her father have another very strange conversation where he demands to know if she plans to get married or not. She is unsure because this is the first interaction she's had with a boy her age ever. And he is the first boy that came along, but she could see herself going either way, and Bolkonski suggests that she make the decision within the hour. He is of the court that says that girls should take their time and decide when to get married, which is more progressive than he's shown before, but he goes about in a way that's just bad dad. Bad dad energy. Also, you may want to look twice, Mary, because I think he has a thing for Mademoiselle Boren. Not two seconds later, Mary emerges from the study and finds Anatole and Mademoiselle Boren making out. She runs off in an embarrassed stupor, but really guys, PDA, right now, right here, in front of my salad, God. Mary is at her designated announce if I'm going to marry Anatole hour, but instead of announcing that, she proclaims that she is never going to get married, and she fully ships Anatole ex Mademoiselle Boren. Anatole N? Is that what we would call the ship name? Of course, Bolkonski is very satisfied by this answer, and he almost shows affection for Mary, but ends up squeezing her hand a little bit too hard and hurting her in the process. 
It's that old man's strength, you know. You never know. Mary, having lost out on her one chance, I'm sure there'll be more to come, at love, resigns herself to a life of spinsterhood in which she will do nothing, nothing but strive to get Anatole and Mademoiselle Boiren married despite their social standings. And Mary, bless your heart, I don't think that's gonna work out, sweetie, but yay? While Lisa can feature in a show called I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant, Mary can star in I Didn't Want to Be Celibate. Mary also agrees to serve her father even more than she does so now. Poor girl. Chapter 6, let's check on our Rostovs because they still haven't heard back from their son Nikolai, who last we left was in a depressed emotional spiral at death's door. They fear the worst, but a letter arrives that Count Rostov reads, revealing that Nikolai has been wounded, he's okay now, and he's got promoted to officer. In discovering that his son is alive, he starts crying and laughing and planning on how to share the news with the Countess without giving her a heart attack. Our queen, Anna Mikhailovna Drobayetskoy, still living with the Rostovs, decides that she will break the news to her friend. Now, instead of coming off right and directly and saying that your son is alive, she milks this even more at dinner. She's dropping hints like, gee, I wonder how Nikolai's doing. I think that he's going to be just fine. She's milking this opportunity. Just tell the woman that her son isn't dead. Natasha, being the only 13-year-old in the room, is the only one that catches on to this and corners Anna Mikhailovna in order for her to reveal if Nikolai is actually dead or not. It took a 13-year-old's deduction to get to the bottom of this mystery? This isn't an episode of Scooby Dostoevsky, <laughs> Which I think would make great syndicated USSR television. Anna Mikhailovna delivers the truth to Natasha, who swears that she won't tell anyone, but naturally five seconds later, she goes off and runs and tells Sonia. Sonia cries again because she is still in love with Nikolai, but Natasha reveals that she's over Boris, so that little strategy, that little plan of them waiting four years for each other did not pay off. And a younger Rostov brother by the name of Petya burst into the scene, only nine years old by the way, and starts reading Natasha for filth with all the men that she's been infatuated since Boris went off to war. Oh mama, you wanted receipts? I got him. Sonia decides to write a letter to Nikolai professing her feelings and relief that he is still alive. Anna Mikhailovna finally proves her worth by talking to Countess Rostov in a way that she doesn't come out and directly reveal that Nikolai is alive. She does it slowly and tactfully. As would any family be after hearing this news, everyone is very emotional, they're crying tears of joy, they're celebrating, except for one stone-cold bitch. Vera. Vera Rostov, dead inside, dead outside. Vote her off the island. The Rostov sans Vera put together a little care package for Nikolai, including snacks, letters, and 6,000 rubles. They then give this package to Boris to get to the army, but they're unsure with how that actually works since the army is moving and they don't know where their boy Nikolai is. But good luck to them, their intentions are the best, but... They're that zany family, as I said earlier, very magnanimous and generous and happy. Chapter 7, No Fear, Boris has tracked down the army and Nikolai in order to deliver this care package. The army is still recovering from their last battle and waiting to get reviewed by the Russian and Austrian emperors. Nikolai is still trekking everywhere in his dirty armor, but he feels like a badass, and I guess that's the only thing that matters. Really recovered from that PTSD? 
Kind of quick there, huh, Nikolai? The two bestest buddies, Boris and Berg, who will remember from earlier events at the Rostov naming day, have found themselves in a very cushy army-related job. They are just part of the administration. They do not have to get their hands dirty. They're living the high life and having a ball. It looks like Anna Mikhailovna's little will shenanigans have paid off for her son. Nikolai and Boris have a bro-hug moment, which is cute. And Boris gives Nikolai the family care package. Oh, sweet! There's crunchy and puff Cheetos in here! Nikolai is saddened because he hasn't been writing home and feels guilty for this. He also had that near-death experience. Could have used a little bit more information on that. In the care package is a letter of recommendation for him to give to General Bagration in order for a further promotion. Nikolai throws it on the ground. Boris is very upset, going, What are you doing that for? You can move up in the ranks and not have to deal with that anymore. But Nikolai does not want to become a diplomat. Despite seeing the horrors of war, he feels that his part in this army is fighting the battles. Boris is all, uh, well, okay. And Berg, who we remember is engaged, or kind of, I think Vera loves him. Berg and Vera, they're... They're blink-and-you-miss-it characters. They don't really hold up anything, and they're both the perfect match for each other because Berg is doing nothing but talking about himself to the other men in the room. Boris finally changes the conversation for anything but him and asks Nikolai how he got injured in the first place. Nikolai, who has never told a lie in his life, according to him, proceeds to embellish the entire story, whereas we know the reader... Um, that Nikolai took a tumble off his horse, got pinned under it, dislocated his elbow, and then ran into the woods screaming and afraid of death. Nikolai suggests that there was way more fighting and casualties involved, and he was a little bit more badass. As a reader, I would like to hope that this is Nikolai bottling up his emotions and feelings after coming to the precipice of death. Um, of course, we have the topic of toxic masculinity in the army once more, and how they can't really confess to how they felt in that moment and so better to pad the bros with a cool story than reveal my personal hurt inside while nikolai is telling his story andre rides in he is of course friends with boris but does not know who nikolai is despite having these distant relationships between the rostovs and the bolkonskis and just assumes he's another dumb soldier jock of course, Andre doesn't let up an opportunity to throw some casual shade at Nikolai and assumes that all of his war stories must be this extravagant and that he is slightly fibbing a bit. Andre, your dickishness is showing. Remember, both of you fought in a very upsetting battle just a few moments ago. Maybe we can give each other a pass, but I understand your need to bring someone down because it makes you feel better and in higher respects. You, you both got ego problems. No one's... No one's not at fault here. Nikolai gets very offended because he doesn't know Andre either, and why is this diplomat coming into the room and reading me for filth when I was just telling my war story? What the fuck? Nikolai is itching to get into a fight with Andre, but Andre subtly says that I will beat the shit out of you. You may be taking out your passive aggression at me and this army, but remember we are two men, and clearly I'm the better, stronger man in this room. You cannot take me in a fight. Andre leaves while respectfully bowing to them both and shows himself out. Nikolai immediately thinks of something about Andre to throw back at him when he's gone. Another wasted opportunity. You know when the, the best insults come to us in our dotage when the fights are long over? Nikolai has his first moment feeling like that. But 
He also kind of secretly respects Andre and admires him and wonders how he can be a soldier of that caliber. So I suppose we can chalk up that whole confrontation to Russian camaraderie then. And in the final chapter of the episode, chapter 8, we meet someone who we should have met a long time before, the Russian emperor himself, Alexander. Alexander! Uh, a lot of Hamilton references to be made here. Here comes the general! Now, Alexander is just a regular guy, but we will soon learn that wearing the crown comes with its perks, because these Russians see him not as a regular man, but as God. I want you to imagine the wildest Beatles slash One Direction, whichever appeals more to your demographic audience, concert that you've ever experienced or seen or heard of, and double that, because these soldiers start foaming at the mouth and screaming whenever Alexander is on screen or on page. He's there to review the army, and what better way to review than a little fashion show parade, am I right? Boom, 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 bring it to the runway, runway, run, 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 runway. Just by passing by them and casually glancing at them on his horse, Alexander is able to get the devotion of this entire army. It just goes to show how willing they are ready to fight for country and for emperor. Nikolai, having just seen the emperor, admits to himself that he would be willing to die for him. He's ready to take a bullet. Where's the bullet? Show me. And Tolstoy describes this fanatical obsession, aka love, as follows. Before he reached the Sovereign, Rostov, an excellent horseman, twice put the spurs to his Bedouin, and happily brought him to that furious pace trot which Bedouin was prone to when excited. Lowering his foaming muzzle to his chest, his tail extended, and as if flying through the air without touching the ground, gracefully lifting his legs high as he shifted them, Bedouin, who also felt the Sovereign's gaze upon him, passed by superbly. Rostov himself, flinging his legs back, drawing his stomach in, and feeling himself one piece with his horse horse, with a frowning but blissful face, like the very devil, as Denisov used to say, rose past the sovereign. My god, how happy I'd be if he ordered me right now to throw myself into the fire, thought Rostov. Translation, so not only is Nikolai ecstatic at meeting the emperor, willing to throw himself in a fire if the emperor so much as deigns to ask him, but his horsey Bedouin is also excited, ready to put on a show for the good old emperor. And this effect is magnified throughout all the troops, the Emperor succeeds, morale goes up just for passing by and giving them the old thumbs up. I'm thinking of Buddy Christ from Dogma, and if that reference doesn't reach you, once again, culture in the zeitgeist. Research, children. Also, I can think of a certain Cheeto in charge that I prefer not to mention by name on this podcast that would have the opposite effect on any sensible troop member. And with that political shade aside, let us conclude this episode of Drink and Read. Um, next week, we will be finishing the first volume of War and Peace. We did it. We've come so far in such a short time. Uh, but before we go, if you like what you heard, aka me and my voice, feel free to follow my other podcast, the first being Nightcaps at the Theater, currently taking a hiatus, but we have lots of episodes in the backlog where me and my friends Matthew Cabrera and sometimes Mark Zebro Jr., watch a movie and get a little drizzy drunk while doing so. Of course, if you want something a bit more recent and caught up to date, there is my other other podcast, Anime Was Not a Mistake, in which me and my BFF Dan Ryan review anime. Because 
I'm eclectic. I've got different pies, different places. <laughs> Showgirls ref, anyone? <laughs> what to expect from next week? Well, there's going to be a lot more war, that's for sure. And our boy Andre is going to get a wake-up call from a particularly puny but powerful Parisian. <laughs> Until then, remember, drink and read responsibly. Prochier! Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Google Podcast, Pocket Cast, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on drinkandreadpod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.